Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is the 20th of the 3rd, another Sunday. Michael, how have you been? I've been I've been fine, Gary. I've been enjoying the beautiful, bright, blue sky days, 16, 17 degrees. Daffodils are out, hyacinths are blooming, the bluebells are coming, and it's a joy to be alive. Never let that existential fear set in, Michael. God, Gary, the existential fear is deep and real. <laughs> It has been a good time for more people than just yourself, Michael. And I don't say that purely because I'm going on holiday tomorrow. Oh, where are you going? I'm going to Donegal, to Harvey's Point, somewhere which has one of the finest restaurants in the country. You're a big fan of Harvey's Point, aren't you? It's beautiful, and it has a fantastic restaurant. Is the rest... The, it's the hotel is called Harvey's Point, is it? It is, and the restaurant, I believe, is just called The Restaurant. And if Harvey's Point wanted to maybe sponsor a podcast, or to send some vouchers up in recognition for the fact that unsolicited they are getting this really positive response then that would be okay too as we have said before Gary we're not just for hire we're for lease I mean I hadn't planned to go into this Michael but if you'd like an impromptu and unsponsored uh, hotel review it's one of the best hotels in Ireland particularly if you're going there with a significant other and again it has one of the finest restaurants in the country or at least it did the last time I was there and I hope to god it's still as good and I don't have another chapter one experience I'm sure it'll be fine it's not that long since you were there and it is a really beautiful part of the country the location of the hotel is fantastic also you get to see the mica crisis up close as you drive through it really you can see the houses crumbling in front of you it's quite a thing to see actually I'm sure that the the people living in the houses are gratified that even if they're living in a the middle of a domestic nightmare that at least the people who pass by in their cars have something to look at. It kind of reminds me of, you know, the old Christian tales that uh, saints could see into hell just so they knew how well they had it off. Right. It's kind of like that. You drive through it and you sort of go, thank God that isn't me. <laughs> it would be terrible if that was me. <laughs> Call Crow. Oh, yes, Mr. Crow. Now, this is not a new story, but it's a, it, it is something I wanted to mention because Mr. Crow... Could we say Mr. Crow said the um, the quiet part out loud? <laughs> I think that's a very good way of saying it indeed, yeah. <laughs> yes, he said the quiet part out loud. So, Carl Crow comes out, and this, this was last week, I believe, and he's talking about hate speech. And then he starts, you know, that that's the usual, talking about hate speech, we, we, more diversity than ever, need to come together, the usual stuff. Yeah, yeah. Which ignores the fact that as rates of racist instance and actual xenophobia have decreased across the world, there's been more and more of a call for things like this. Which is actually an interesting point in and of itself. But then he starts, he goes off script and he starts talking about the Irish Freedom Party. And he says they campaign on hate and, and whatever you think about the IFP, you know, perfectly fair to stand up in the parliament and uh, use your protection from defamation to say absolutely anything you want. Grand old tradition. Yes. But then he starts saying that hate speech laws would uh, remove their ability to campaign mm. and that they would have no right to campaign on these issues. And then you have a sort of, hmm, that kind of sounds like you're saying hate speech laws will immediately be useful to you politically by limiting what people can campaign on. Now, that to me... Well, a couple of things there, Gary. First of all, it sounds to me like we got a little window into the soul of the deputy there that maybe that was a window he would like to, he wanted to keep the curtains closed on. 
He was talking about hate speech. He was talking about immigration. He also talked about uh, issues of gender, transgenderism. Uh, yeah. And uh, these are all the issues, he says, that there should be no right to campaign on. There should be no right. Yeah. Mm. Listen, Gary, I, 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 I don't want to put myself in the position of being standing on the steps of the High Court anytime soon. But all I say is that kind of attitude to the use of legislation to restrict the capacity of other people to engage in political discourse about subjects that you didn't want them talking about is the kind of attitude that we saw a number of times at different places in the 20th century. And it wasn't great. I mean, some people could say, Michael, that passing a law, maybe for other reasons, but where you have an awareness that this law will limit the ability of recognised political parties to campaign on certain issues, is in a way, shall we say, totalitarian or anti-democratic. A little bit old anti-democratic-ish, a little bit not very freedom of speech-ish, a little bit not very freedom of organisation and political... Even the Irish constitution, the fundamental legal document of the state, can be changed. People have a right to call for it to be changed. They do. And that has happened, in fact, Gary. So it's odd that you know our most foundational document would have within it a means to change it almost as if doing so is in some way tied to democratic legitimacy. And you, when you use the word legitimacy, Gary, I thought there was this old-fashioned idea amongst Irish politicians that if you were confronted with somebody whose ideas were bad ideas, the way you defeated them was by engaging them in debate and dis- and showing up, as they say, Gary, sunshine is the best disinfectant. You show up the badness of their ideas and you make a mockery and a hissing and a byword of their policies. And that's the way that in a democracy you deal with the kind uh, with the opposition that you regard as being noxious or injurious to democracy. I, I had a conversation with John McGurk about this, and he did bring up the point that, well, does this mean it would then be fair for someone like Herman Kelly, who's the head of the IFP, to come out and announce that if they're ever elected, it would be illegal to campaign in favour of, uh, of the EU? or more immigration, or anything the IFP is against. Because, I mean, if it can go one way, surely it's fair it can go the other way. Well, I don't know if it's fair, Gary, but if there is any lesson in history is that what goes one way one day will very good chance go the other way another day. I don't know a lot about Cahill Crow, but this didn't really endear me to him. I'm sure he is a man who is very loving to his wife and his family if he's married and has children, and very good to his dog if he has one. Well, I think, Michael, we can say that he's honest to a fault. (laughs) Yes. I think we can say that. And perhaps we should have regard for this, that if he's willing to say it, other people are probably thinking it. It strikes me, Gary, that there was a time in the history of Fianna Fáil when they mightn't have been seen with the greatest of affection by other member, by members of the government in Dáil Éireann, and who there might have been individuals at the time in the 20s who regarded uh, the kinds of things that they were campaigning for as the kinds of things that maybe you should pass a law and stop that kind of nonsense. Now, there was actually one mention of what was said by Crow in the chamber. It was in the, the Sunday Times. It was from Colin Coyle. But that article also mentioned a very interesting thing. So apparently a couple of days before those remarks came, the chairman of the Irish Freedom Party filed an objection to the deputy's plans to build a house. The deputy wants to build a house? He wants to build a house. The chairman of the Irish Freedom Party filed an objection to that. 
Well, that seems a very unfriendly act, Gary. Why wouldn't you want the, the deputy to have a house? You know, they try and stop you building a house. You should say that we should restrict democratic rights <laughs> in order to single them out. It's just a tiff for tash at that point. It seems a little bit excessive, though, Gary. Do you not think... There does, there does seem to be like a... It's like he had heard the phrase, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind, and decided that that meant that what we should do is disproportionate retribution. There was a very famous uh, Times editorial about, I think it was the prosecution of the Rolling Stones for possession of marijuana. It was entitled, To Break a Butterfly Upon the Wheel. And I think this is an example of somebody taking a sledgehammer to kill the butterfly. Um, I think that there are better ways of dealing with somebody objecting to your planning application than going onto the floor of the dawn and demanding that they be silenced and cast into the outer, the outer darkness. I mean, that would, that would be one way to maintain discipline in Fianna Fáil. You'll be cast into the void. So yes, it turns out the chairman of the Irish Freedom Party is a uh, planning consultant working for a neighbour. Of Mr. Crow. Uh, apparently the dispute has been going on for over 40 years. Oh God, lad. And started in, in a plan that, that Crow's parents put forward. Is it any wonder we have a housing crisis in the country, Gary? When a TD is, 40, is 47 years waiting for a house. I, I, I love the idea of Crow hearing about that just before he went in to speak. <laughs> and just in a fit of rage. <laughs> I'll get the bastards. But I actually think the Times does a surprising amount of good stuff. And they will publish a lot of stuff you won't see elsewhere. But I've got to give it to them for being able to dig up that fact. That's good stuff. The great thing is, is the guy he's acting for, the the family who put in the complaint about the house, is also a fan of Oh, no. God. It gets better. It gets better and yet it gets worse. Now, as to other people who had a uh, good time recently, Michal Martin, who caught COVID over in Washington, or just before he got to Washington, and because of that, didn't get to meet uh, Joe Biden and do the general St. Patrick's Day in the uh, the White House. However, because of that, it also appears he missed Nancy Pelosi's reading of Bono's poem. Now, I'm going to open this by saying it is one of the worst poems I have ever heard. It reads in part if it was written by a child, and not the kind of child you think you would think would have a future in the arts. But Bono's response to it was that he he sends a, a little lyric or something to Nancy Pelosi every St. Patrick's Day. Apparently they kind of know each other. And that it was not meant to be publicly broadcast. So on that basis, it's awful. But I can't imagine Bono is happy about it either. What? Gary, I am sure and certain that there are things that you and I have written and sent to friends that had we known that they were going to read them out at a meeting or send them in to a uh, a journal or a newspaper publication, we would have had very serious uh, reservations about that or, or more to the point, we would very seriously have changed the content and or the expression of the article. So I have a certain amount of sympathy for him that it's a bizarre thing that Pelosi would have taken this. Also, the thing is, Gary, if Pelosi had thought it was as bad as many, many people in Ireland think so, to the extent that the headline in the Irish Times starts off, in, well, in inverted commas, don't read it. You have to imagine this is indicative that Nancy Pelosi does not have a very strong literary aesthetic, that her her capacity to identify a good poem from a bad poem doesn't seem to be very strong. I think we should give the uh, the listeners a rendition 
of the poem so that they can properly contextualize it and and this conversation uh, would you like to take that or will i oh god no, i wouldn't be strong enough I, uh, you I, you can do this and i take me i'll take the earphones out one more step on the road to me eventually just singing to the listeners <laughs> oh saint patrick he drove out the snakes with his prayers but that's not all it takes for the snake symbolizes an evil that rises and hides in your heart as it breaks. And the evil has risen, my friends, from the darkness that lives in some men. But in sorrow and fear, that's when saints can appear to drive out those old snakes once again. And they struggle for us to be free from the psycho in this human family. Ireland's sorrow and pain is now the Ukraine, and St. Patrick's name now Zelensky. Actually, on, I knew the rhythm was weird, but until I tried to actually uh, recite it, that is a bizarre rhythm. It's a limerick. It's basically he's following the patterns of a, of a limerick, but it's not a limerick, obviously, because of... It doesn't quite fit. You know, well, first, obviously, it doesn't scan. I mean, several of the lines, they don't quite scan. But where they do scan, the rhythm is definitely... I don't know if it... Whatever, it's not iambic pentameter or trochaic hexameter or whatever, but it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. There was an old man from Natchez whose clothes they're always in patches. Yeah, I, I was just happy I got through the first two lines without laughing because O St. Patrick, he drove out the snakes with his prayers, but that's not all it takes, would break a weaker man. Because <laughs> again, it doesn't, doesn't quite scan. Apparently not something he ever intended would be public and just a nice thing he thought he would send to Nancy Pelosi. So maybe the real lesson here, Michael, is don't give nice things to Nancy Pelosi. I think that's a very good lesson for everybody to learn, Gary. So it was a good day for Michal Martin because I, I imagine he missed this. He could have both gotten COVID and been there for this part, which would seem to be the worst of all possible outcomes. Can you imagine the poor man is there? He's the Taoiseach. It's Bono. And let's face it, Bono has written some I mean, decent songs. People out there, there are, I know, who don't like U2. I'm not a huge U2 fan, although it's very much my generation. But I, there are songs he's written he's, there are good songs. And with some lovely lyrics, uh, for which I imagine Bono is responsible. But this, <laughs> can you imagine me all is there? Nancy is doing the reading. The lyrics are by Bono, Ireland's greatest cultural export since Brian Friel died. And he has to sit there, one imagines, with a rictus of a smile, nodding along. And he was at least spared that, that public humiliation of having to pretend that that god-awful thing was actually something which resembled a poem. But and to be fair, you know, it, it, it rhymes or it very nearly does. And I can tell you as somebody who's been writing bad poetry for more than 40 years now, it's not easy to get them to rhyme. To be honest, when they said, here's a poem by Bonner, like I'm not a big fan of YouTube, but to be honest, I haven't listened to most of their, their catalogue just because I'm, I'm not that old. And if you have listened to their entire catalogue, I assume you are shall we say, getting on in years. Yes. But I kind of assumed when she said it that you would have a sort of uh, D. Schneider uh, kind of situation. For those who, who don't recall, D. Schneider was the uh, lead singer of Twisted uh, Sister. And they ended up being called before the US, or he ended up being called before the uh, US Congress because of what was called the PM or C hearings. That's the Parents Music Research Centre, I think. And he is dressed as he would be on stage. And he kind of pulls out these crumpled notes. And then he gives uh, an immensely capable speech. 
about why this is all fine and basically just bats around the Senate hearing. Indicates that Tipper Gore has some uh, sexual dysfunctions. I was, I was going, to, going to ask you if this was the Tipper Gore thing. So Tipper Gore, who is Al Gore's wife, was asking him about uh, sexual content of the music. And he pointed out that uh, that's not what he reads into certain lyrics. And that he wouldn't expect a normal person would read that into those lyrics. But perhaps someone with some sexual issues might. Okay. Right, yeah. And that perhaps it says more about the uh, particular listener in that case. Right. Yep. But that's not what we got. No. Anyway, Foucault seems to be back in the news again. He seems he's turning up on social media for some reason. Foucault being uh, the uh, the French philosopher. 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 Post-structuralist. Didn't like that phrase. His work is generally concerned about power. And it was deeply impactful and very influential throughout all of academia. But Foucault himself was... Um, his personal life was always a bit weird. The last few years, there has been a sort of recognition that Foucault was uh, pretty clearly a pedophile. Which, you know the old saying, Michael, that um, all philosophy is just an attempt to justify the philosopher? Yeah. Foucault, given that all of his work is on power and sexuality and knowledge, and then he spent his free time going to Tunisia to pick up per children, and uh, prepubescent boys particularly, that he could have sex with, really seemed to live his philosophy. Yeah, I remember back in the day when I was a student, Foucault was the go-to guy in a way that maybe for 10 years or 20 years previously had been Gramsci. It was all Foucault's, whether it was mental illness or if it was criminality or whether it was alienation and power structures and the deconstruction and... uh, the nature of the revolutionary act and he had this thing i can i remember that for him it wasn't simply just theory but rather the life of the philosopher was a the praxis had to be in itself some kind of a revolutionary act to deconstructing the power structure of the bourgeoisie who were alienated because madness was, if you like, mental illness was it was merely a response to the alienation caused by the exploitation of, by the powerful against the disempowered. The same cri- cri- criminality was just in the same way as art could be a response. It was a, it was a, a form of creative response. Schools are functionally the same as prisons. All that sort of stuff. Pink Floyd. Hmm. All, all that nonsense. And it does seem to be that he was actually consistent, that he that he's like... There was another French uh, intellectual who went to Tunisia with him, whose name, I think it was Guy Sorman or something, Guy Sorman. And that was one of the things that I think, did this, I'm sure this was out before, but I think it has reappeared. That Sorman describes these scenes when they go to Tunisia. This was, I think, like in the late 60s, the early 70s. And these bunches of these boys, little boys, nine, ten years old, would pursue him in the streets and he would throw money at them. And I think one of the, I think actually one thing that maybe has become public, and it's so odd and titillating that this has been one of the reasons why it's big again in the press. That it has now transpired that when he would say the usual place, we would meet in the usual place, that the place he would go to, let's frankly, Gary, in the context of how we would understand it, where he, the place he would go to rape these children, because these are nine year old children who are incapable of giving consent. They are very poor children. Many of them, indeed, may have been essentially, actually, 
trafficked children. It's far from clear to me that just because children were pursuing you in the street, if you were a well-known pedophile, that you weren't pursuing them because you had been told to pursue them by whoever was running you, whether it was your family or some kind of other kind of pimp. Where he, he, he would go to rape these children, abuse these children, was in fact a cemetery. It was a graveyard. And somehow that rather strange and macabre notion has titillated certain members of the psychoanalytic community and others that this just seems to put the tin hat on the fundamental weirdness. The other side of it, I suppose, which is what has kind of given it energy as well, is the fact that there are quite a few people out there in, in left academia in France, and not just France, who are defending him, essentially defending him. I mean, it's very mealy-mouthed and it's well this and that, but it's essentially what feels like it sounds like a form of defence of what he was at. Which is quite odd. I, I have no idea why this has arisen again, because I had thought there had been general acceptance that Foucault was a pedophile. And I think originally it was the letter he signed in France calling for the age of consent. I can't recall if it was to be abolished or reduced. And a lot of French high society, cultural elite, signed on to this thing. I think the other part of this, Gary, that make, shall we say, the critics of Camus, or not, critics of Foucault are really enjoying, because it's really discomforting for the left is the fact that he went to Tunisia. He didn't do it in France. He went out to a poorer country and he and and exploited poor brown children. And that's part we shouldn't let go either, Gary though. I mean you 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 know this, I'm sure. If you go back to the 60s and 70s and look at statements of people involved in radical progressive politics, what Foucault was saying wasn't actually that weird. What the Greens and, so, and left socialists in Germany, for example, were saying about uh, child sexuality and sexualization of children. Yes, the sexual emancipation of children. Very popular phrase from the region. I do note there is a bit of a humour in this, um, in how this is going for Foucault. Because Foucault's one of his big things was the link between knowledge and power, Michael. Yeah. And as more has become known about Foucault's, shall we say, personal uh, habits, his influence seems to be getting a bit weaker. Because it's uh, there is a little bit of whataboutery amongst more kind of right-leaning critics of this. But I think there is also a point. A right-wing philosopher would not have had this much rope. Oh, God, no. God, I mean, the, he would have been so cancelled so fast and so hard. And I would also suggest that he would have been his own tribe in terror and embarrassment would have cast him out into the dist- in, into the into the fires of hell, let alone the wider culture. I mean, I have I've legitimately seen people try and defend Foucault by saying that his intentions were good. And you're like, well, <laughs> intentions can matter in certain instances. At the point you're going to Tunisia to pick up prepubescent boys to have sex with in a cemetery, intent is really, really unimportant. The other thing about it, I mean, if you enjoy the irony thing, is that what this is actually demonstrated for, in a sense, in a, in a way, is a kind of a confirmation, in part, of a Foucault analysis of society. Because what this demonstrates is that Foucault was a man of power. That had he not been a powerful person, supported by power structures within French society, he would not have been able to do this. He would not have been able to get away with it. And what it demonstrates is that even though in France, and not just France, all over the Western world, progressives and men of the left and women of the left like to think of themselves as being the insurgency, 
the revolutionaries, the rebels, were storming the citadels of power. The reality is, in fact, that they have occupied those citadels of power. The partic- certainly the cultural citadels, the universities, the publishing houses, the newspapers, the journals, those places, they are controlled and dominated by people of the left. They are the people in power. And they are protected by that power. It's an odd situation. You know, like the, the story about the, the Japanese man who didn't realise the war was over and kept fighting in the jungles? Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of element of that sometimes with certain left cultural uh, organisations where they don't realise the war is over, but also they don't realise they've won the war. Yes, they refuse to believe it. And as we've talked about this before, I think that if you read Schumpeter, Schumpeter is very prophetic about this because he he describes a world where increasing the the success of capitalism is that it produces more and more uh, specialization, more and more leisure time. So you get a larger and larger number of people going to the academy and a larger and larger number of people coming out of the academy with professional qualifications, with doctorates. But because the numbers, because of the nature of study, they, they're not being rewarded in the way that people say in the financial markets are or other areas of business. And that leads to this deep resentment they have towards the wider culture, but that they do occupy the positions of power within the culture. Onto that to someone else who's having a good time of it this week, Michael. Uh, in one aspect, at least. Yeah. Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, and also all Facebook executives based inside Russian territory. Yeah, they're feeling... there's. A sigh of relief. It came out, we're talking about in the last show, that Facebook had decided that they were going to allow people to call for the death of Vladimir Putin and Lyshenko, uh, the Belarusian dictator, in certain regions of the world. And I think our conversation could basically be summed up as, don't do that. Jesus Christ, that's a terrible idea. That's a really, really bad idea, yeah. Facebook, I think about two days after Russia (laughs) initiated criminal proceedings on the basis that they were doing this, decided it would not do that. And that, no, you cannot call for the death of Vladimir Putin or any world leader on uh, Facebook. It was interesting in that in the few days it took for them to change course, I saw, particularly in the Middle Eastern media, a lot of discussion about uh, how dare Facebook do this to Russia and not allow them to do it to Israel. Yeah. Which I think was an absolutely foreseeable consequence. I think that we are kind of starting to lose our the run of ourselves in this. Now, you and I have had conversations with other members of what might be loosely described as the Irish right or conservatives, who some of whom have, uh, shall we say, more sympathy with Putin and with the Russian act than than we have, and they're they're very insistent, Gary, on complexity and nuance and two sides to the story. Now, I'm very much while I'm sure there are lots of good reasons that we should reflect on, and there are geopolitical issues that we should try and understand and analyze because it's always good to understand why things happen because in theory that means we could maybe avoid them happening again and that never actually happens the idea that we learn from history i've come to the conclusion gary is a vain hope but anyway it to me it just seems like big big powerful country decides to roll some tanks into other country which is not a threatened you know you shouldn't do that however i have to say if you're a russian in ireland i mean we have really gone full bore I was driving up a street today at home and I saw 
the window of a local hairdresser's with bedecked with Ukrainian colors and saying, we stand with Ukraine. I, I must say, I, I imagine what it must feel like to be an ordinary Russian in Ireland, a kid in school or a, somebody working in Lidl or in your local engineers or whatever that happens to be. And it must be a deeply uncomfortable feeling. And I would hope, in fact, I've, I, I don't think there's any, I don't think that anything has happened, but I would hope that people would display a degree of understanding that Vladimir is doing one thing, but the guy that works down uh, works down the local Aldi isn't actually involved in directing Russian foreign policy. I've seen some very odd things happen. Russian works being removed from uh, schools, uh, from orchestral repertoires. I think the worst thing I've seen um, come about was actually, it was the British sports minister. And it was uh, Huddleston, I think, is the British sportsman at the minute. And they were talking about Medvedev, who's a tennis player, about him playing in Wimbledon. And he basically said that if he wanted to play at Wimbledon, he would need to come out and publicly exclaim that he is not a supporter of Putin or the invasion. And on one hand, I can see people saying, well, it's only tennis. If he doesn't want to do it, then he doesn't have to do it. But he shouldn't have a problem doing it anyway, I think would be the line of a lot of people. But it's also what he does for work. So we have a British minister standing up and saying that before someone is going to be allowed to work, at least in the territory that minister can control, they are going to need to make political statements of a type the minister approves of. And that is just not a great thing. Do you not think that we're going through one of those moments in history that... When we see them happening at other times, we smile and we condescend and patronise and, oh God, weren't they so silly? You remember the stories you used to hear when you were in school about the fact that during the First World War, uh, for example, people stopped calling their dogs Teckels or Dachshunds because they were German dogs. And there were accounts, apparently, I don't know if it was true, but there were accounts that were reported of German dogs being kicked to death in Britain because they were German dogs. Uh, the German Shepherd became the Alsatian because you didn't, you know, you didn't want, you didn't want German Alsatian. And that we we made fun of the Americans because they, they stopped calling French fries French fries and they became freedom fries. Right now, there there's a couple of orchestras, student orchestras or university orchestras, which decided that they're not going to play Russian music. I mean, Rachmaninoff. We're not going to play Rachmaninoff anymore, Gary, because who died in 1943? Mussorgsky died in 1881. Tchaikovsky died in 1893. Prokofiev died in 1953. Glinka died in 1857. Schreiben died in 1915. I mean, I don't know what effect any of these people really had on Russian foreign policy today. We had a case of a university it was described in the press as Milan's leading university, I can tell you it is not <laughs> Milan's leading university, University Bioka, but had decided briefly, or somebody had decided, they weren't going to teach 19th century Russian literature, which would have been Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. Now, other than the fact that Tolstoy is one of the great pacifists of the of the 19th century and greatly admired by Gandhi, amongst others, and Dostoevsky was one of the great Christian moralists who would not, it's hard to, we, we shouldn't put words into people's mouths who are long dead, but I mean, it's very hard to imagine that Dostoevsky would have been there in the front of the, uh, the, the, the pro-Crimea invasion rallies cheering on Putin. This kind of thing, is ju- it just feels, in Israel for many, many years, there was, I don't know if it was a legal prescription, but there was a cultural prescription on the performance of music by of Wagner. Yes, but if anything, Michael, that's just what he would have wanted. 
Well, yeah, I mean, th I will allow that. And I would also say that it's hard to argue that Wagner was not anti-Semitic. And it's very hard to argue that there wasn't a close relationship between Wagner's sister, for example, and the Nazi party and the personal relationship with Hitler. I mean, you could you could kind of see there was a kind of a logic. But I think it was 1981, Zubin Mehta, who was a great Israeli conductor, later went on to be a conductor in Europe, I think in Florence, in the symphony in Florence, maybe in Milan afterwards, I'm not sure. He performed uh, in he was conducting the Israeli Philharmonic in 1981, and he caused a bit of a hoo-ha at the time, but he performed it. And there was a great debate in Israel about whether or not it was acceptable to perform music with Wagner. There are debates about whether or not a play like The Merchant of Venice should be performed in Israel, or even many great Jewish actors have have performed Shylock. And I know Dustin Hoffman performed a famous, he would say he was always his great ambition was to play Shylock. These are interesting debates, but what we're talking about is just nonsense. It's ridiculous that an orchestra isn't going to perform Tchaikovsky because of what's happening. This is the kind of thing that in a few years' time, people will look back and say, God, that's embarrassing. What, what, were, they, what were they going on about? I'm leaving aside the fact that I don't think that Tchaikovsky would have been a particularly popular figure in modern-day Russia, since, as we know, Tchaikovsky was rather fond of the old man love, which is not a very popular thing to be involved with these days in the current Russian dispensation. Speaking of, of Wagner, did you know that uh, Wagner uh, wrote a book on the influence of Jews on music? I did not. It's called uh, Judaism in Music, I believe. And you can find translations of it uh, all around. Not a fan of the old Jewish music. No. Well, you know, in fairness... There are those of us who like Mendelssohn and there are those of us who like Wagner and I'm very much in the Mendelssohn camp. I always love the, the, the story, the apocryphal or not, that Mendelssohn, where it was, I can't remember where he was from. We say he was from Dresden, I can't remember where he was from, but he was apparently going through one of the narrow streets of Mendelssohn and he met two young Prussian officers. And the uh, street was not sufficiently wide for the three of them to pass on as one of them had to stand back and... Mendelssohn removed his cap, stopped, and one of the Prussian officers said to him, Jewish dog. And Mendelssohn took his cap off, bowed, and said, Isaac Mendelssohn, which I always, I always enjoyed. And also, Mendelssohn's music is, of course, preternaturally beautiful. I am told by many people that so is Wagner's. I always remember, I think it was George Bernard Shaw's comments about Wagner. Wagner has some wonderful moments, but some terrible quarter hours. If I can be a little bit political for a minute, they're going. There are people out there right now in the world of tennis, for example, who are saying that Russian tennis players who do not take a political position will not be allowed to compete no, in now, tennis. Now, to be fair, it was the British minister. The only the only comment I've seen from World Tennis on it has said that they don't want to see Russian athletes personally penalised. No, but there, but he wasn't the only person talking about this in tennis. There were people talking. I remember there, it, became, it was a subject which came up in, in Australia, which in connection with something else. But it was, but the Russians got it, got got caught in the tail end of the of the debate. Now, I just find it ironic that they're going to say that uh, somebody has to make a political statement or he won't be allowed to play. But there are also people, but there are people who will say this, but at the same time, if a man wants to play tennis in the women's, in the women's singles, 
that's the, that would be okay. I, I find that a bizarre double standard that it's that you you have to ascribe to a political position to to play your tennis. But if by chance you're a man and you decide you want to play the women instead of playing the men, because frankly, you're the number 648 in the world with men, but you think you might make a decent living if you're playing against the women, but that would be okay. And that, that, by the way, I'm thinking of a recent swimming tournament rather than any recent tennis tournaments. Although Rene Richard, of course, one of the most famous early trans athletes. And that is an interesting story. Also, it seems to have caught the public attention in a way that previous cases of a transgender competitor beating a female competitor, literally in the case of Fallon Fox, just didn't really catch the public imagination. But there was another story, uh, I wrote a small piece about it today, that I wanted to touch upon, and that was brought up in the House of Lords by Baroness Nicholson. I believe Baroness Nicholson of Winterbourne. Yes, and it is an important story. So, this is the story that brought up now she hasn't released the details to confirm this but she has said that she has seen all of the details and that there is an official police record of this and it all stands up yes so what she said was that a a, someone came to her and said that she had been raped in a hospital but that when she went to the police about this the police went to the hospital and the hospital said that a rape could not have occurred because there are no there were no men in the hospital at that time that this patient had been raped on a female ward and there were only women odd story already yes because that just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense and the hospital spent by the way apparently a year dimming any police investigation in this by simply saying that that was the case it turned out that the alleged rapist was transgender and that they were a trans woman and that had been uh, put on this ward on that basis according to the baroness the hospital has now accepted that something did happen and that they are now looking into it and there is an ongoing police investigation Mm -hmm. but the basic gist of it was that according to the baroness the NHS's policy is to respond to any complaint about a male being put onto a female ward by saying uh, that that's not the case everyone here is a woman and they apparently took that to also mean police inquiries yeah she refers to what uh, uh, an NHS policy which is known as Annex B which she says allows patients to be placed in single sex wards according to the gender with which they identify at the time and I'm quoting here she, yeah, what she said in the House of Lords she said the result of NXP is that hospital trusts inform ward sisters and nurses that if there is a male as a male, as a trans person in a female ward and a female patient or anyone complains, they must be told that this is not true. There is no male there. What I thought was most curious and most interesting and in a sense most worrying, to, in, if you're certainly in Britain, and potentially in Ireland and other places that introduced this kind of legislation was the response of Lord Etherton QC, as reported in the Telegraph, who argued, arguing against Lady Nicholson's proposals, that the current policy was, quote, entirely appropriate and consistent with the anti-discrimination law in the Equality Act. And what that it seems to me to be saying is that the response of the hospital was correct and consonant with the law as written. And rather than responding to this situation as being an example of a defective consequence, shall we say, of a badly framed law or a problematic issue with the law that needs to be looked at and perhaps resolved, his response, no, no, that's what the law says, therefore there is no problem. This is is what we have said when we are looking at anti-discrimination and with equality. 
so this is this is not a problem and i think that's a very strange response to what is a, a horrible thing that happened to a woman in a hospital where surely to god is it too much to ask that somebody could feel should feel safe and that they are in a safe space when they're in an all-female ward in a hospital and we're assuming there is this is a truthful and accurate representation of what happened um, because it was brought forward by a peer. They say they have the details, but again, there's not enough there to check. But I think it, assuming this is true, it's one of those cases which highlights some of the concerns of campaigners in this way, where they say that the ease with which you can change sex or the mere fact that you can at all and have access to uh, certain areas or certain services puts transgender and female rights in conflict with each other. Yes. So you have cases like this. You have cases like the Barbie Kardashian case where someone who seems to have a deep-seated hatred of women gets put into a women's prison because they say they are a woman and that's just what happens. I think these... I haven't heard a lot of talk about this case outside of the more kind of conservative, uh, socially anyway, British publications, and I mean, Grip published something on it. And I expect this is going to be one of those ones that people just don't want to talk about because it raises some uncomfortable issues because how do you fix this issue uh, without undoing a lot of the work these people have done on um, the ability to change your gender or sex? I don't know how you do that. I don't. I think this is a, this is a, a, a circle that you, you, you can't square. And I would just, par- on, on passant remark, this is reported in the Telegraph. I mean, the Telegraph is in some is yes, it is a conservative newspaper, but it's not an off the wall rag. Conservative, the Telegraph is pretty careful about its reporting. It's usually pretty good. It hasn't gone the way of the English Independent, which has just gone totally mad in the other direction. Yeah, and it's not the the Mail, which sometimes has uh, a reputation for being uh, a bit more, shall we say, campaigning in its attitude. But yeah, I think we have a problem here that there are, the cant is trans rights or human rights. And that is presented as if that was not a a statement, but rather that it is in some sense an argument, that it's not just rhetoric. The fact is, I don't see how you can square the idea of exclusively women-only spaces as women understand that idea with the equality laws that we're introducing to guarantee the rights of transgender people. No, and I think the problem here is that, and it's it's kind of lost because a lot of the conversation on this are people who are active campaigners on one side or the other, is that one would expect this is a very rare thing on the basis that most transgender people are perfectly fine people. And historically there is no indication that people who uh, are transgender are more likely to be violent or to be criminal than the general population in fact i think that the the the, the studies that were done hist- historically would suggest the reverse that they were less likely to be violent or aggressive and less likely to be criminal but i think you run into the problem that every case that happens due to these laws is a case that didn't necessarily have to happen and happened in part due to these laws. And why? Because when people like Gript or people like us made the observation when these laws were being framed, you know, you may be faced with situation X, Y, or Z. The response that we got was, that's nonsense. That's just the usual scaremongering right-wing rhetoric 
that will not happen. That's just nonsense. People wouldn't do that. Very prominent, a lot of discourse at the minute is that um, I think it, I think it's fair to say that a lot of the left is racist and sexist because of this, that they treat the people they are talking about if they are in a minority or if they're in some sort of protected subcategory, as if they are not people. Like, fundamentally, that they're not people, that they're kind of childlike and can't yeah. be blamed or don't have any malice. And the problem you constantly run into is that all of the people in these subcategories, be it racial, uh, sexual, be it transgender, be it whatever, are people. And a certain amount of people are just malignant. Yeah, you can't get away from the fact that they are actually people. It, there's a it, there's a, a, a weird infantil, infantilization sometimes of uh, groups that are considered to be say, protected categories. Uh, they are, or else they're treated like almost as totems rather than individual human beings with agency. They are totems. They are symbols. They are. They're they're also being used ultimately in a way. I mean, there's the old Kantian thing, isn't there? That uh, is it Kant, I suppose it's Kant, but uh, more general principle in, um, of morality that you do not use human beings as as a means towards an end. You have to treat every human being ultimately as an end in themselves. And I think that times, I I, I don't think it's just the left that does this, and we all do this when we're involved in our own particular bits of. Uh, advocacy or rhetoric, you use, they end up using people to achieve what they see as a, an aim, which is a beneficial aim, a good aim, a positive thing to do. But they ultimately piggyback by using these people as a means to get towards that. And that's rarely a positive thing to do, morally speaking, but it also produces negative outcomes because you don't describe full, proper, human, complex agency to these people. Because you, you 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 treat them as some kind of weird platonic notion that they're not like, as you say, Gary, they're not like ordinary people who will do bad things and good things. Hmm. The, the, what is it, the superior moral value of the oppressed? Yeah. And that's kind of the pact in... Well, we see this, I think, particularly in the United States. We haven't seen quite so much of it in Europe. But it's increasingly a common thing in... I suppose in, in in Anglophone cultures, the idea, for example, that only white people can be racist, and I've I've heard academics explicitly say this. And the thing about that, Gary, is it's pure nonsense. I mean, we just have to look. Any any anthropologist will tell you. Any anybody who's read a, a history, a book, of, will would tell you that every culture, every imperial culture, certainly has a great capacity for racism. Have you ever seen, um, it's a meme called the midwit. It, the, the meme is a, um, is, it's a bell curve. And you have three representations, one on the far left, one on the far right, and one in the middle. So low intelligence, medium intelligence, high intelligence. Yeah. And the gist of it is that the low and high intelligence will agree, and the person in the middle will give a very convoluted explanation, which is absolutely false. <laughs> and I kind of feel that about academics saying that only white people can be racist. Because if you question it, they say, well, of course, I'm talking about structural racism and, you know, inbuilt systems which perpetuate racism, which sounds very advanced and, you know, yeah. very remarkable. Unfortunately, if you think about it for more than a couple of seconds, it falls apart immediately because you understand that there are small structures that can also influence, that can impact on people. 
based on their peer group or the people they associate with. It doesn't have to be these national level structures. So even if you believe in structural racism, they can absolutely impact on all races because all races are capable of using them. And so you have the, the very low IQ, everyone can be racist, and the very high IQ, everyone can be racist. And in the middle, you just have a lot of people and it's mostly just trying to cope. And then, I mean, it's become a cliche of the of the discussion now, but there's that great phrase of George Bush's, which does seem to ring true in a lot of these discussions, where he he, he referred to the soft racism of low expectations, where we don't expect people to behave in a certain way. Well, you couldn't expect people to behave like that because of the terrible experiences they have because of the alienation they've experienced because of their oppression and so on. So we don't expect them to behave well. I did an interview with um, the headmistress of the headmistress of Michaela, the school in England. I cannot remember. Yes, I cannot remember her name off the top of my head. It's just gone immediately. She has a fantastic name. I'm going to stagger it here. Is it Catherine Burble Singh? Yes, it's Catherine Burble Singh. Um, I'm not sure if we did it during the interview or we're talking um, about it before or after because we had a bit of a discussion about race and education um, both during and after and she's making the point that there are certain habits um, that children have that uh, when they go into particular schools progressive schools they're told that you know those are cultural habits you can't act to do anything to them you just have to accept it yes and while they are cultural habits they would absolutely not be done to anyone else in that culture that you wanted to keep a good relationship with because they're seen as incredibly disrespectful. Yes. And there seems to be this, we cannot say anything about cultural practices, even when people inside that culture say those cultural practices are meant to signify disrespect to you. That you just have to, you know, you just have to allow them to do it. And also, when you're talking about cultural practices, which are not in any sense intrinsic, because we're talking about human beings, and therefore... The, the, their culture is something which is accreted over a period of time and in a particular context. It's not something which is genetically bred into them. These Very often you're talking about cultural practices which may be deeply damaging to to their prospects and their capacity to be successful. And if you, if you, you listen to people, say, in the United States, talking about certain cultural problems that exist within, say, the African-American community, and in, increasingly, not just within the African, but... but lower income communities across like say issues regarding the presence of the father in the household um whether substance abuse pre uh problems with the uh, criminality these uh, cultural problems which uh, curiously affect much much less upper middle class professional white people living in manhattan and actually by the way also upper middle class people of colour in Manhattan are far less affected by these cultural problems as well. And yet there is no desire to say, well, maybe we look, we need to look at how we address changing these cultural patterns. For, it, it's a weird, it seems to me a weird paradox or contradiction because the left is, one of the positive things about, the, one of the corrective things about the left when dealing with the right, because it's always a tension, it's a yin and a yang thing. Is The left is fundamentally optimistic. The left believes that we can change things, that things can be made better, that humanity is malleable, that maybe they believe there's no such thing as human nature, there's no such thing as a fixed human 
nature, but everything is, can, can be changed. And yet at the same time, when believing this, they look at certain cultural activities or cultural behaviours in minority groups or protected classes and say, oh no, we can't do anything about that. It would be racist to try and address that. And it would also be in, in some sense ethnocentric for us to make a moral judgment about that kind of behaviour, even though we might look at it and say, well, this is impacting on the capacity of people to be successful. And I say you successful in the broadest sense of the word, in culturally successful or successful in their lives. But we can't do anything about that. We can't make any attempt because that would be oppressive and racist and ethnocentric. And at the same time, they believe in the complete malleability of human culture. I, I don't, it seems to be a strange paradox, but there you go. Well, it is as it always is. It is as it is always is and always, sh- and, and always shall be forever and ever. Amen. I suppose that is the, the ultimate question. Politicians hate giving direct answers to certain questions. And I would suspect in this case, the direct answer to a question, how often are you willing to let this happen? Yes. Is one that politicians are not going to want to answer. But arguably is one they could answer. Well, I say the answer is fairly simple. They're willing for it to happen as often as it as often as it happens, as long as it's not reported in the papers. And it's not in any way pointed out that they could bear some blame. Yeah, it's a little bit... <laughs> it might sound like a stretch, but I think it's a little bit like the problem of our energy policy in this country. Um, and, and I... And, I know it's a straight, but the last few days, obviously, everybody, Gary, in this country, well, not everybody, most people have been talking about how much it costs to put diesel or petrol in their car, how much it costs to buy a bag of coal, how much, it co- how, how much a unit of electricity now costs on their bill as opposed to what it cost last year, and so on. And again and again, people are saying, oh, it's the bloody Greens. Well, it's all the Greens, you know. The Greens did it. And I keep saying, no, they didn't. The Greens didn't do it. There's only six greens in the doll or seven, whatever number there have been in the, in the past or there are now. Fianna Fáil did it. Fine Gael did it. Labour did it. The Greens didn't do it. The Greens have never been in a position to impose policy in this country. And yet we hear again and again politicians talking about our policy, particularly this, but it's Jesus, Gary, how, how we've talked about this before. When we hear Irish politicians talk about something that's going on in the country, in this voice of, oh, well, you know, it's terrible, isn't it? I wish somebody could do something about it, but you know, what can you do? If only we knew somebody in power, that we could we could talk to them, that maybe they could do something, but hey-ho, we're just left with it. It's just really hard. Well, actually, on the last episode, I was saying I'd never seen anything reported of Michal Martin calling on the EU to allow for VAT to be reduced or an excise on energy-related products. So the first story of its type during the week. Yes. Maybe we're having an impact, Michael. You know, <laughs> I doubt it, but maybe, or maybe I, I suspect it's a bit like is it, that cultural convergence that no matter what culture you go to, if you in, across the world, across time, everybody that has an army eventually will put horsehair on their helmets because everybody likes kind of fancy bits on their helmets that stream and make them look good in battle. And that's a form of cultural convergence. And I think this may be just cultural convergence. So I think we should leave it at that. I think so. I think we should, before somebody starts objecting to our planning, we shall return uh, on Sunday next if we don't return before it. No, we will be back on Sunday next, even though I am on holiday. But uh, that, those are the sort of sacrifices I make for the people. You're a hero, Gary. Uh, we all agree. 
You are a hero. I am, and I live in hope that I don't, at any point soon, become a martyr. <laughs> no, no, none of us wants to die a hero's death. All the best. Bye-bye.